Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Greetings, comrades. First off, if you're wondering well, I was, what I was lost, well, um, I kinda wasn't. Those who have missed it uh, know that I have uploaded a video blog entry on our YouTube page about the celebrations of the 9th of May here in Riga. It's, yeah, it's kind of a news thing, kind of a video blog. A link will be in the description, and I posted about this in social media. But yeah, we are back now, in audio form. And, as uh, I have been updating my Soviet magazine collection... Now I have some, well, strange things to introduce to you. Such as Soviet cinema magazines from 1960. Which made me kind of think. Because if you remember, and I'll quote Lenin here, of all the arts, for us, cinema is the most important. And why this is all awesome? Well, how about we start with the review of a North Korean comedy from 1958 given to our Soviet audiences by the Soviet magazine just called Cinema. It's called My Niece, My Son-in-Law. I bet you haven't heard of that one frolicking North Korean comedy, which is posted here as a great example which uh, everyone should see. The story there is um, about how two young people, one of whom is a factory worker in a steel mill, and another one is a salesperson in in a supermarket, how they decide to get married, but then they want to introduce their parents to each other. And turns out that, you know, they both have just one parent each, and then they take the same bus, and then crazy shenanigans happen, and everyone laughs in the end. Yeah, and, you know, this is given an amazing rating, about 5 out of 5. And this got me wondering as I read through these magazines, because they are all filled with uh, propaganda. But what exactly does the cinema in the Soviet Union have to do with propaganda? Because, oh yeah, and I will uh, we'll be heavily using uh, Michael Russell's Soviet montage cinema as propaganda and political rhetoric, which was his uh, Doctor of Philosophy thesis from the University of Edinburgh, and uh, other sources, which he also denotes here. Because he has summarized it, and uh, that helps me explain what I read in my own Soviet cinema magazines. Because, uh, sadly enough, I do not have a cinematographic um, cinematographic education. I just have um, an experience in this whole thing. And I'm a deep fan of movies. But, yeah. Uh, dear thanks to Mr. Michael Russell. 
because you really helped uh, put all this stuff that I read and my sources together. Because you see, for starters, kind of um, what we think is propaganda here in the West and how it has been defined before is, um, is a bit too narrow and we have this negative thing uh, associated with propaganda right now. Propaganda, well, technically just means, you know, something that is used to influence the way of thought of um, of how other people think, you know, the way of thought and the general, general way of their actions. And uh, for cultural and historical reasons, because of how Lenin glorified it and how everything happened there, propaganda did not have the same kind of this negative meaning, both in the moral and the political sense in the Soviet Union, which it has, you know, in the West, because, you know, right now we just speak about propaganda in this purely negative sense. And the Soviet director's understanding of what propaganda is and what it could actually do was just crazy different than how we use it now. The Soviet authorities and a lot of Soviet artists, especially those who really believed in Marxism, who really believed in communism, such as Eisenstein and Podovkin and Vetrov, yeah, these guys all had a positive view on propaganda. They saw it as an essential and, you know, creating part of this new Soviet society as a way how to build this new Soviet man. And they saw it as one of the kind of main means by which they actually could, you know, contribute to the building of this whole communist society of the bright future of everything. And yeah, even though uh, in modern days, uh, a lot of these old movies which the Soviets made, like uh, Potemkin or The Mother or The Man with a Movie Camera, as, you know, as propaganda, as they are, it shouldn't be thought as, you know, making them somehow worse or, or uh, making them, you know, anything else than, you know, great art, just, you know, transferring them to mere agit propagandation or anything like that. But one needs to kind of uh, understand the motivation which is there behind behind these glorious movies and if you haven't seen them i clearly encourage you to and you know i think it's important to kind of um kind of bring out bring out the stuff the 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 real sauce in these works that truly make them kind of unique and interesting especially if you look at it from the modern western um, worldview contributions to what is cinema and in this, uh, and in this, we can kind of, kind of, and I hope in this episode to look what exactly cinema meant to the Soviet Union, and how just calling it propaganda cinema was not an insult at all. And yeah, the Soviet authorities uh, basically, like I said, regarded cinema as being uh, the best thing to do uh, <laughs> to be used as this propaganda medium, like Lenin's quote here at the beginning of this episode. And, you know, when you use cinema for propaganda, it clearly has advantages for the Bolsheviks over, you know, other art forms such as theater or pamphlets or something. Uh, the cinema's status as a mass-produced industrial product meant that, uh, meant that you could, like, reliably reproduce it. Uh, the Soviets could basically send out a film from the center to be exhibited in the provinces, and they would be sure that the context of the performance was fixed in advance and, you know, precisely reproducible. Because, you know, there are other, you know, other ways how to show a single theater play, but 
Without heavy knowledge and tampering, you can't change the contents of a movie. This made it kind of the most controllable and reliable form of um, of this propaganda tool, as they wanted to use cinema for. Cinema was then <laughs> the ideal propaganda weapon, and uh, Trotsky sums up the view with which the Soviet authorities uh, kind of looked at this propaganda potential of cinema, when he himself, you know, uh, was crying about their own socialist failures to make proper use of it. And this is from 1923, quote, <clears throat> The fact that we have so far, that is, in almost six years, not taken possession of cinema, just shows how slow and educated we are. Not to say, frankly, stupid. This weapon, which cries out to be used, is the best instrument for propaganda. A propaganda which is accessible to everyone which cuts into the memory and may be a possible source of revenue. And later on, Stalin will uh, kind of echo the statement of Trotsky when he, and I quote here from 1924, will say that <clears throat> the cinema is the greatest means of mass agitation. The task is to make it into our own hands. Trotsky felt that, you know, um, unlike religion had been the opiate of the people in feudal society, and, uh, well, let's admit it, vodka played a somewhat similar role in the February days, the capital stage of Russia's development. Cinema. Now, cinema, according to Trotsky, would serve as the great eye-opener for the masses. Kind of this, um, <clears throat> quote, liberating educational weapon of socialist society. This is from um, a historian, a cinema historian, Taylor. The Soviet government would have understood uh, that this educational weapon, of course, has to be a propaganda weapon in the hands of, you know, these great forerunners of the proletariat. For uh, the guys up there in the Kremlin, as for the directors to educate and to create propaganda, yeah, that was the same thing. Schools were full with propaganda, so why shouldn't art be? In the early days, all this clearly mocked together, like uh, in a nice little bowl, because <laughs> in, uh, Bolsheviks used to just state that propaganda was just, mm, quote, political education work. As a director, Krinitsky uh, kind of posted in his report to the 1928 cinema conference, quote, <clears throat> the results of the construction of cinema in the USSR and the tasks of Soviet cinematography, quote, Cinema, like every art, cannot be without a political goal. Cinema must be an instrument of the proletariat in its struggle for hegemony, leadership, and influence in relation to other classes, and, in the hands of the party, it must be the most powerful medium of communist enlightenment and agitation. But yeah, like I said, it wasn't just the authorities who did this. Like, these early guys who actually really believed that this idea would succeed and that this was the best thing ever, wrote about it themselves. Such as from the Cinema Magazine, the second issue from the April 1916, uh, the uh, kind of the one of the greatest operators of all time, you know, cameraman, Edouard Tichet, remembers about how he has filmed Lenin, because this apparently was the 19th anniversary of uh, Lenin. He says, quote, Forever, I now remember how I filmed the great Lenin. I had the opportunity to film him multiple times. I remember 1919. Moscow was celebrating the, and this is a real quote, <clears throat> Total Military Education Day. Workers were arriving from factories 
in the red square. I arrived in the square in the morning. I had a huge camera and 120 meters of film roll. I started to film the workers. I was told that they will be sent straight to front lines from here. And suddenly, all the rows kind of started waving, everything started to move. And everyone, just looking at the same direction, started to chant, Lenin, Lenin, Lenin. Vladimir Ilyich went without any haste and very calmly. He was thinking and very concentrated. When he looked at the people, his face was smiling. And his head, like always, he had this small little jockey cap. And you know, when he saw me with the camera, he said, Com- Comrade, comrade, you know, film me less, but you know, you film more those who will listen to me. The comrades who will be sent off the front lines this very day. Vladimir Ilyich stepped on a truck platform and started to stand just on the very edge of it. All the square just was completely silent at this point. I was standing right next to the Kremlin wall and couldn't just move myself forward. And it was painful up until the point of desperation to think that I wouldn't be able to see the Lenin's face, that I wouldn't be able to capture him. But I was very lucky. Talking, Lenin turned around and I could film him a bit. That day, I had about 30 meters of Lenin's footage. I was worried about the final destiny of this negative, but everything was great. The film was perfect. Then, remembering the the events of that day, I understood that, uh, in the words of Vladimir Ilyich, who recommended me to more film the comrades going straight to the front lines, uh, they had a special touch in me. This meant that, you know, I finally understood that he was not only very simple, but also... A de- uh, but also had a deep understanding of the new revolutionary art, deep understanding of its destiny. At the same time, I understood what important meaning has the films of Lenin. And this new revolutionary art, when the simple person becomes the main object of interest. Also, the most important part was that I understood how much and how carefully we must take pictures and film this genius and un- unlike uh, undescribable person to even if partially make him immortal for the future generations. It was such a shame that we at that time weren't able to record his voice back then. End quote. So, as you can see, this whole propaganda thing did not just come out of nowhere and wasn't just pushed up from the front. At that time, people really believed these ideas. The communist ideas back then had a huge sway everywhere. From the beginning of the 1920s, like a a lot of artists in the Soviet Union, such as the constructivists, yeah, all of them were completely enamored with the fact and they were constantly stating that industrial art and propaganda were quote the proper fields for artists endeavors rather than the creation of autonomous works of art separate from everyday life for example Mayakovsky uh, said that his advertising jingles for Moselle Prom 
which which is uh, Musk, Moscow's uh, field production, Moscow's agricultural production, or his window posters for Rosta, which was Russian trade agency, were as valuable as anything else that he had written. And one interesting thing is that, uh, unlike some authors who have written about this, such as Vertov, uh, these guys and a lot of Western authors claim that Lenin was insisting uh, that everything must contain uh, a certain proportion of newsreels, you know, faked up uh, smiling stories and propaganda, uh, you know, that this might happen in, uh, like, any time any film was made. At this point, Lenin was actually proposing a restriction, when he was in power back then, uh, on the proportion of pure propaganda films. Basically, the status quo, which Lenin was challenging, was one in which, uh, <clears throat> quote, predominantly agitational and newsreel, fi- newsreel films were being showed in cinemas. This had been the case in the Civil War period. Lenin, later on, in the NEP, in the NEP period when uh, some freedoms were achieved, was insisting of the need of actually some commercial fiction films to be, you know, showed in the cinemas. And this is kind of <laughs> makes sense if you consider uh, that... You need to actually attract people to go watch your propaganda movies in the first place, because nothing is worse than a propaganda movie which no one watches. It's useless, both as a movie and as a propaganda. And, also, they, uh, at this point, after war communism, really needed revenue from uh, popular, purely commercial films in order to rebuild the finances which they have just com- which is they completely crushed beforehand during the years of the war communism and see one of the more interesting times of this like nip period and i'm talking about like these 20s right now more because um, because that's where we are in the stalin series and this is where truly the most influential uh, soviet cinematographers come in uh, these guys actually showed uh, real newsreels and real documentaries, well, which kind of often showed the real reality rather than, you know, a fictional ma- made-up one. Yeah, this was also used as propaganda, as weird as it may seem for you guys knowing the Soviet realities, especially at the NEP when everyone was just rebuilding. This uh, this whole thing was the belief that Einstein and Vetrov and Pudovkin and, you know, uh, other cinematographers agreed was that propaganda can be, quote, either factually accurate or factually inaccurate. Or may even use some factual inaccuracy to try to express a, quote, higher truth. And of course, this uh, using movies as a propaganda tool was completely not lost on the population and made it in political anecdotes, such as, quote, in Leningrad, around the Winter Castle, uh, there's a movie being filmed about the October, October coup. The Bolsheviks are attacking, the Junkers are uh, f- shooting back. And, you know, from, from the crowd standing backwards, there are screams. Hey, hey, native ones! Fight back and hold it until the last one! And another one. Uh, there's, a, there's a film about the Lenin being filmed in 1958. And, you know, three movies are being filmed at here at the same time. So, apparently, uh, there is a story from the cinematographers at that time that there had been a time where three different Lenins met in kind of this big studio buffet uh, and completely, like, started arguing with each other without stepping out of the role and just yelling at each other and giving arguments 
which they each give in their own movies. And soon after, the actors were punished, and um, it was kind of um, said by the party organizers that um, to the direct to kind of uh, the studio director that all of these three uh, filming crews, yeah, they must all (laughs) now from now on have dinners in different times. So you know, political anecdotes and propaganda. Yeah, that is also a tool, if you think about it. One interesting aspect of all this situation is the fact that the founder of, uh, well, how the experts call it, Soviet montage cinema, as I get it, is the editing. But, uh, yeah, Lev Kuleshov, kind of (laughs) founder of all this situation, he himself asserted that the montage method itself, that is the editing method, um, yeah, but, you know, all this uh, professional cinema text is, you know, making me use the proper words, I suppose. <clears throat> Anyhow, see, he himself stated that uh, this method of editing stuff was inseparable from the political ideology of the filmmaker. In the sense that, you know, when you ed- edit any images and facts, no matter how politically neutral your raw footage might be in itself, uh, all of this, you know, through editing, you can uh, communicate a position of certain ideology. And here, uh, Kuleshov quotes an example given by, well, no less than Sergei Eisenstein himself in one of the Eisenstein's lectures at the State Institute of Cinematography. And here, he's concerning the editing of a newspaper, quote, In a capitalist paper, all the events would be edited so that the bourgeoisie intention of the editor and accordingly of the paper, would be maximally expressed and emphasized through the character of the montage of the events, that arrangement on the newspaper page. The essential exploitativeness of the capitalist system would be clouded over in the bourgeoisie paper in every conceivable way, with the evils of the system concealed and the actuality embroidered. Kuleshov continues this. The Soviet paper is edited completely otherwise. The information about those very same events would be edited so as to illuminate the entire condition of things in the capitalist world, to reveal its essential exploitativeness and the position of workers as it is in reality. And yeah, you know, uh, leaving leaving in uh, kind of the sidelines the um, the accuracy of of uh, Kuleshev's account, because you know Kuleshev stated this in 1974 as a, you know, total depiction of of the actual practice of what the newspapers did in the 20s and the 30s, it kind of makes clear how the Soviet Soviet movie makers regarded their own efforts uh, when they tried to make movies which were embodying this new Soviet-type thing. Kuleshov, furthermore, in his lecture, goes on that, quote, "...it can be proved with the facts related to each other in this fashion." that the ideological sense of these facts would be differently apprehended by the reader of the paper. In the communist paper, the class nature of the fact will be revealed, while in the bourgeoisie press, this nature will be fogged over and perverted. And yeah, Kuleshov, obviously here, and you know, as he says, and we have no reason not to believe him at this point, Eisenstein as well, famous Eisenstein born in Riga, uh, clearly regarded the call of this the, the newspaper and the bourgeoisie in general, and, you know, by extension, everything else the capitalists did, 
as you know uh, as as being edited and filmed and shot in such a way as to completely obfuscate the audience from the real facts and uh, this this was the result of the film and i'm quoting from from experts here quote <clears throat> from the film communicating an ideological position to the audience while simultaneously concealing the fact that is doing so thereby naturalizing that ideological position in the mind of the audience end quote editing of the real raw materials however is presented by kuleshov as as we saw before as a means of revealing the truth and uh, this kind of gives me a quote from v for vendetta that uh, politicians use uh, use lies to conceal the truth while artists use them to reveal it and kind of uh, if you read that comic makes me think what alan moore thought but yeah kuleshov uh, presented this as quote <clears throat> presenting a particular ideological position openly and without concealment thereby illuminating and revealing the situation as it is in reality and yeah our great lecturer mr kuleshov he concludes at the end of all of this situation was that the editing as the complete work of you know shooting movies and making cinema is just utterly linked to artists' worldview and ideological purpose, no matter if you're making a, a kind of a commercial movie, uh, a fictional story, or, you know, uh, editing a newsreel or something. This means that, um, at least, well, if we still believe Kuleshov and Eisenstein, this whole thing, the, quote, montage method, it was itself linked to the propaganda. Kuleshov is uh, stating here that the methods of editing cannot be, you know, even understood other, uh, otherwise than, you know, just means of constructing political propaganda as a form of political rhetoric, and that all movies have it, it's just that this is the part of the great ideological war. However, and uh, this this comes from Russell's work, uh, he states that Kuleshov's films are among the least pol politically tendentious of all the uh, <clears throat> montage directors. Quote, Indeed, he came under increasing pressure from hostile Soviet critics in the late 20s and early 30s for precisely this reason. Kuleshov himself even admitted that uh, in, in the same lecture from 1974, In the beginning of my work in cinema, the question of editing, the questions of aesthetic theory generally, were questions which were substantially murky for me, and I did not connect them with class interpretations with the worldview of the artist. And yeah, in the 30s, uh, the great Eisenstein himself, you know, he linked up the kind of political and propaganda needs of the party at any given moment, and uh, how cinema was fulfilling those needs. Quote, In the Soviet Union, art is responsive to social aims and demands. One day, for example, all attention is centered on the village. It is imperative to raise the village from the slow of ancient custom and bring it into line with the Soviet system as a whole. The peasant must learn to see the difference between private ownership and individualistic survivals on the one hand, and cooperation and collective economy on the other. S.O.S., the seismograph of the party apparatus notes a vacillation in this section of Soviet life. All at once, all social thought is directed towards it. Throughout the country, the press, the literature, the fine arts, everything is mobilized toward of danger. The slogan is, face the village. 
the Shmichka, the union of proletariat and poor peasant is established. Opponents of Soviet aims are ousted. The strongest propaganda guns are put into action. There begins a bombardment on behalf of socialist economy. Here, the cinema paints a really big role. But yeah, all this discussion here uh, from the early days of uh, Soviet propaganda cinema just kind of shows one thing there. That uh, the early days and the greats, and why they are the greats here, they were left to their own devices. They could film what they like and they were allowed to have their own opinions about, you know, what, (laughs) in what ways their movies would be propaganda material and they would take pride in their work. That would later change, well, for obvious reasons, as, you know, Uncle Joe, who was a movie fan, enters the picture starting with the 30s more and more. See, as I've spoken before, Stalin loved Hollywood movies. He really loved Hollywood movies. He loved Tarzan and he loved John Wayne. But his interest in movies um, was not limited to just enjoying them, with his very limited auditorium, obviously. He actively supervised Soviet cinema for like 30 years. During this time, Stalin acted as uh, the ultimate censor. He personally ordered films to be cut, remade, or banned and destroyed. His control of the Soviet movie making, unlike the previous period of uh, some freedoms, was completely detailed. He politely suggested subjects and genres and directors and actors and writers and composers and everything. And um, he read scripts personally of proposed Soviet movies and scribbled little notes on them. He watched draft cuts. He demanded insertion or deletion of scenes and dialogue and demanded promotion, demotion or... Uh, removal of writers, directors, and, well, literally everyone who had committed some ideological sin. Well, uh, according to Stalin, obviously. The historian Stephen Kotkin writes that a key moment in Stalin's attitude towards cinema happened in 1934. We'll get to that later, too. When he was shown a preview of a new Soviet movie, Chapayev which is a really famous movie here, and, you know, a lot of Chapayev jokes come straight from that movie. Uh, the movie was, well, obviously about the Reds and the Whites in the Civil War, and Stalin loved the movie. He ordered a, uh, kind of, uh, this official newspaper, Pravda, to print a completely glorious review. Now, Kotkin maintains that the movie transformed Stalin from, quote, someone who occasionally viewed films for diversion to their executive producer, From the backgrounds of scenes to the dialogue and score, Stalin played a decisive role in supporting not just the objects of political importance, but also farces. According to New York Times article, uh, where they're they're looking at this uh, Stalin research, uh, they claim that Stalin went on uh, to watch Chapayev with his cronies, according to their sources, at least another 36 times. So yeah... Stalin's control of Russian movie-making was completely disastrous for the prowess there. In the 1920s, the communist government allowed Hollywood movies to be shown there, publicly. Uh, They shown Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. They were really popular with Russian audiences, and uh, their films outsold uh, kind of the didactic Soviet films of that era, because Lenin allowed of them, and this was the Nip period. And yeah, like I said, at this point, Russian cinema produced completely crazy artistic movies of the silent era. 
like I said, I, this is this is where we we see Eisenstein working. But by the early 30s, Stalin had you know grabbed his power together. We'll get to that later on. And Soviet cinema then completely plunged into a downward spiral of censorship, constraints, and bureaucratic ineptitude, which you know. Uh, all happened within a, an atmosphere of fear and suspicion. And as usual, the party exercised a total and complete control over all forms of culture. A centralized bureaucracy, Soyuz Kino, controlled the production, content, distribution, and exhibition of movies. Yeah, contrast that with the 20s and how much freedom Eisenstein had. And, you know, for all the parties' ideological disapproval of <clears throat> frivolous, decadent, bourgeoisie, capitalist Hollywood films, under Stalin, Soyuz Kino favored, um, interestingly enough, musical comedy and melodrama, kind of similar genres to actual Hollywood studios. The approved Soviet movie style, which was uh, back then, by the way, labeled <clears throat> Cinema for the Millions, also, quite much directly copied the Hollywood style of clear literal narrative, which obviously should involve moral uplift. Because, well, and I'm glad to say this once again, comrades, happiness is mandatory. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And talking about uh, happiness is mandatory and the great hero Eisenstein. Yeah, well, how Stalin treated Eisenstein, one of the really, one of the best movie makers ever, kind of shows the extent to which he exerted control over the Soviet filmmaking and the fear in which he was held by Russia's intelligentsia at the time. During the 1920s, Eisenstein had already established himself as one of the world's most innovative and you know profound directors with uh, Battleship Potomkin, Strike, and Ten Days to Shook the World. But <laughs> by, uh, the late, uh, by the late 30s, Eisenstein's avant-garde technique and, quote, idiosyncratic choice of subject matter had aroused the anger of Stalin and the commissars, who insisted that he and other filmmakers conform to the official and adventurous socialist realism demanded by the party, and, you know, he could only now make a very narrow range of approved topics. During the early 1930s, Eisenstein had spent some time in Western countries, and actually had managed to shoot considerable footage in Mexico, 
for a monumental great film intended to be called Que Viva Mexico, which, by the way, was financed with Hollywood money. But the project was never completed. And um, Stalin made sure <laughs> that Eisenstein knew that he was displeased with his, quote, desertion from the Soviet state. Which was, well, obviously a, yeah, almost certainly a death sentence, but hey, that's Eisenstein we speak about. When, I, when he returned to Russia, Eisenstein that is, Stalin eventually offered him <clears throat> a last chance to make an epic biopic about the medieval Russian hero Alexander Nevsky, who fought off German invaders, the Teutons. And yeah, Alexander Nevsky, filmed in 1938, was Eisenstein's first movie with sound and um, music by Prokofiev. And yeah, it was, again, immediately praised as a masterpiece both in Russia and the West. But, interestingly enough, as you notice, this comes out in 1938. Months later, Stalin signs the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact, and the film was withdrawn in Russia. However, when the Nazis invaded in 1941, then it returned to the cinemas, and Stalin kind of approved Eisenstein's plan to make a movie about uh, the 16th century Tsar Ivan, Ivan the Terrible. The movie also was called that, Ivan the Terrible, and Stalin admired it. It was intended to be a trilogy. Stalin loved part one, which was released in 1944, but, but, he realized that part two was a vicious mockery of Ivan the Terrible. So, this, <laughs> this movie was suppressed, and all work of part three was just completely cancelled. Eisenstein was forced to agree to a list of ideological errors made by this film, including the change that Ivan was made to look weak-willed and facilitating instead of strong, and that the oprichniki, the secret police, the Ivan the Terrible's enforcers, they were portrayed as they were, as a gang of thugs, instead of loyal Russian servants who were, quote, ridding the state of class enemies. Eisenstein himself died uh, just a couple of years later, and, um, and yeah, this opening of Soviet cultural archives has actually revealed interesting evidence about, you know, this whole attitude to movies and his edicts on what types of films he wanted. And I will be now uh, giving you a read from a document, from a record, which is a meeting which includes Stalin and Eisenstein over this part two of Ivan the Terrible. So, of course, I will be reading to you the transcript of the session in the Kremlin where Eisenstein was <clears throat> politely invited to, and I hope that shows something about Stalin's own attitude in all this and uh, how this happened. <clears throat> Quote, we were summoned to the Kremlin at about 11 o'clock in the evening. At 10.50, we reached the reception. Exactly at 11 o'clock, Proshebiskev came out to escort us to the cabinet. At the back of the room were Stalin, Molotov, and Zhdanov. We entered, exchanged greetings, and sat around the table. Stalin. You wrote a letter. The answer got delayed a little. We are meeting late. I first thought of giving a written answer, but then I decided that talking will be better. As I'm very busy and have no time, I decided to meet you here after a long interval. 
I received your letter in November. Zdanov. You received it while it while still in Sochi. Stalin. Yes, yes, in Sochi. What have you decided to do with the film? We are saying that we have divided the second part of the film into two sections, because of which the Livonsky march has not been included. As a result, there is a disproportion between the different parts of the film, so it is necessary to correct the film by editing the existing, existing material and to shoot mainly the Livonsky march. Stalin. Have you studied history? Eisenstein. More or less. Stalin. More or less. Well, now. I'm also a little familiar with history. You have shown the Oprichina incorrectly. The Oprichina was the army of the king. It was different from the feudal army, which could remove its banner and leave the battleground at any moment. The regular army, the progressive army, was formed. You have shown this Oprichina to be like the Ku Klux Klan. Eisenstein at this point says that they were white calls, but we have the black ones. Molotov. This does not make major difference. Stalin. Your Tsar has come out as being indecisive. He resembles Hamlet. Everybody prompts him as to what is to be done, and he himself does not take any decision. Tsar Ivan was a great and a wise ruler, and if he is compared with Ludwig the Ninth, then Ivan the Terrible is the tenth heaven. The wisdom of Ivan the Terrible is reflected by the following. He looked at things from the national point of view and did not allow foreigners into this country. He barricaded the country from the entry of foreign influence. By showing Ivan the Terrible in this matter, you have committed, the, uh, you com you have committed a deviation and a mistake. Peter I was also a great ruler, but he was extremely liberal towards foreigners. He opened the gate wide to them and allowed foreign influence into the country and permitted the Germanization of Russia. Catherine allowed it even more. And further, was the court of Alexander I a really a Russian court? Was the court of Nicholas I a Russian court? No, they were German courts. The most outstanding contribution of Ivan was, the, was that he was the first to introduce the government monopoly of external trade. Ivan the Terrible was the first, and Lenin was the second. <clears throat> Zdanov. The Ivan the Terrible of Eisenstein came out as a neurotic. Molotov. In general, emphasis was given to psychologism. Excessive stress was laid on internal psychological contradictions and personal emotions. Stalin, it is necessary to show the historical figure in the correct style. For example, it was not correct that in the first series Ivan the Terrible kissed his wife so long. At that period, it was not permitted. Zdanov, the film is made in the Byzantine style, but there it also was not done. Molotov, the second series is very restricted in domes and vaults. There is no fresh air, no wider Moscow. It does not show the people. One may show conversations, repressions, but not this. Stalin, Ivan the Terrible was extremely cruel. It is possible to show why he had to be cruel. One of the mistakes of Ivan the Terrible was that he did not completely finish off the big five feudal families. If he had destroyed these five families, then there would not have been the time of troubles. If Ivan the Terrible executed someone, then he repented and prayed for a long time. God disturbed him on these matters. It was necessary to be decisive. Molotov. It is necessary to show historical incidents in a comprehensive way. For example, the incident with the drama of Demyan Bidny Bogotop. Demyan Bidny mocked the baptism of Russia, but in reality acceptance of Christianity was a progressive event for its historical development. Stalin. Of course, we are not good Christians, but to deny the progressive role of Christianity at that particular stage is impossible. The incident had a very great importance because this turned, uh, turned the Russian state to contacts with the West, and not to an orientation towards the East. 
About the relations with the East, Stalin said that after the recent liberation from the Tartar yoke, Ivan the Terrible united Russia in, in a hurried way so as to have a stronghold to face a fresh Tatar attack. Astrakhan was already conquered and they could have attacked Moscow at any moment. The Crimean Tartars also could have done this. Then Stalin continues. Jimian Bidney did not have the correct historical perspective. When they shifted the statue of Minyan and Podzharsky closer to the church of Vasily Blazhenova, then Jimian Bidney protested and wrote that the statue must be thrown away and that Minyan and Podzharsky must, must be forgotten. In answer to this letter, I called him, Ivan, do not forget your own family. We cannot throw away history. Next, Stalin makes a series of remarks regarding the interpretation of Ivan the Terrible and says that Malyulas Krukhatov was a great army general and died a hero's death in the war with Livonia. Cherkasov, in reply, says that criticism has always helped and that after criticism, Budovkin made a good film, Admiral Nahimov. We are sure that we, uh, that we will do no worse. I'm working on the character of Ivan the Terrible not only for the film but also in the theater. I fell in love with this character and think that our alteration of the scenes will be correct and truthful. In response to this, Stalin replies, addressing Molotov and Zhdanov. Let's try. Cherkasov, I am sure that the alteration will be successful. Stalin, may God help you. Every day a new year. Laughs. Eisenstein, we are saying that in the first part a number of moments were successful and gi this gives us the confidence for making the second series. Stalin, we're not talking about what you have achieved, but now we are talking about the shortcomings. Eisenstein, then asks whether there were some more instructions regarding the film. Stalin. I'm not giving you instructions, but expressing the viewer's opinion. It is necessary that historical characters be reflected historically. What did Glinka show us? What is this Glinka? This is Maxim and not Glinka. Uh, at this point, uh, <clears throat> they were talking about the film co film composer Glinka, made by uh, Arts one, one L. Arnsham. The main role was played by B. Chirkov. Artist Chirkov could not express himself, and for an artist, the greatest quality is the capability to transform himself. Addressing Cherkasov, you are capable of transforming yourself. In answer to this, Zhdanov said that Cherkasov was unlucky with Ivan the Terrible. There was still panic with, the, with regard to spring, and he started to act as a janitor. In the, in the film, in the name of life, he plays the janitor. Cherkasov said that he had acted the maximum number of czars and he, he had even, even acted as Peter I and Alexei. Zdanov, according to the hereditary line. He proceeded according to the hereditary line. Stalin, it is necessary to show historical figures correctly and strongly. To Eisenstein, you directed Alexander Nevsky. It came out very well. The most important thing is to maintain the style of the historical period. The director may deviate from history. It is not correct if he simply copies from the historical materials. He must work on his ideas, but with the boundary of style. The, the director may vary within the style of that historical period. Zdanov said that Eisenstein is fascinated by the shadows, which attracts viewers from the action, and the beard of Ivan the Terrible, and what Ivan the Terrible raises his head too often so that his beard can be seen. Eisenstein then promises to shorten the beard of Ivan the Terrible in the future. Stalin. <coughs> Recalling different actor actors from the first part of the film, Ivan the Terrible. Kurbsky, magnificent. Staritsky, very good. He catches the, the, f the files excellently. Also, the future Tsar, he is catching flies with his hands. These types of details are necessary. They reveal the essence of man. The conversation then switches to the situation in Czechoslovakia in connection with Cherkasov's participation in the Soviet Film Festival. Cherkasov narrated the popularity of the Soviet Union in Czechoslovakia. 
The discussion then touched upon the destruction of the Czechoslovakian cities by the Americans. Stalin. Our job was to enter Prague before the Americans. The Americans were in a great hurry, but owing to Konyev's attack, we were able to outdistance out the Americans and strike Prague just before its fall. The Americans bombed Czechoslovakian industry. They maintained this policy throughout Europe. For them, it was important to destroy those industries which were in competition with them. They bombed with taste. Cherkasov spoke of, about the album of photographs of Franco and Goebbels, which was with Ambassador Zorin at his villa. Stalin. It is good that we finished these pigs. It's horrifying to think what, what would have happened if these scoundrels had won. Cherkasov mentioned the graduation ceremony of the Soviet colony in Prague. He spoke of the children of the emigrants who were studying there. It was very sad for these children who think of Russia as their motherland, as their home, when they were born there and had never been to Russia. Stalin. It is unfortunate for these children. They are not at fault. Molotov. Now we are giving a big opportunity to children to return to Russia. Stalin pointed to Cherkasov that he had the, the capacity for incarnation and that we have still the capacity to incarnate the uh, artist Khmelyev. Cherkasov said that he had learned a lot while working as an extra in the Marine Theater in Leningrad. At that time, the great master of incarnation, Shalapin, acted and appeared on stage. Stalin. <clears throat> he was a great actor. Zdanov asked, how is the shooting of the film Spring going on? Cherkasov. We will finish it soon. Towards spring, we are going to release spring. Zdanov then said that he liked the content of spring a lot. The artist Orlova played very well. Cherkasov. The artist Plyat acted very well. Zdanov. And how did Ranevsky act? Waves his hand. Cherkasov. For the first time in my life, I appeared in a film without a beard, without a mustache, without a cloak, without makeup. Playing the role of a director, I'm a bit ashamed of my appearance, and I feel like be hiding behind my characters. This role is a lot of responsibility, because I must represent the Soviet director, and all our directors are worried. How will a Soviet director be shown? Molotov. And here Cherkasov is settling scores with all the directors. When the film Spring was called into question, Cherkasov read an editorial in the newspaper Soviet Art regarding Spring and decided the film was already banned. And then Zdanov said, Cherkasov saw all, that all the preparations for Spring had perished, so he took on the role of a janitor. Then Zdanov spoke disapproving on the critical storm which had come up around Spring. <clears throat> Okay, small break here. I'm sorry that this is a bit chaotic, but this is literally a uh, transcript document, and this was translated uh, from Russian by one mm, Sumana Ja, which uh, for, which comes from a document revealed in uh, in 1992. So you know the uh, chaos here is original one, and you know for authenticity, I do not want to edit this uh, kind of translated uh, transcript here. So, uh, carrying on. Stalin was interested to know how the actress Orlova had acted. He approved of her as an actress. Cherkasov said that this actress had a great capability of working with an immense talent. Zdanov. <clears throat> Orlova acted extremely well, and everybody remembered Volga Volga and the role of the postman Orlova had played. Cherkasov. Have you watched In the Name of Life? Stalin. No, I have not watched it. But we have a good report from Kliment Yefremovich. Voroshilov liked the film. Then that means that all the questions are solved? What do you think, comrades? Stalin addresses Molotov and Zdanov. Should we give comrade Cherkasov and Eisenstein the opportunity to complete the film? And uh, added, please uh, convey all of this to comrade Bolshakov. Cherkasov asked some details in the film about the outward appearance of Ivan the Terrible. Stalin. His appearance is right, there is no need to change it. The outward appearance of Ivan the Terrible is fine. Cherkasov. Can the scene about the murder of Stariskova be retained in the scenario? Stalin. 
You may retain it. The murder did take place. Cherkasov. We have a scene in which Malyuta Skuratov strangles the metropolite Philip. Zhdanov. It was in the Tver Otroch monastery. Cherkasov. Yes. Is it necessary to keep the scene? Stalin said it was necessary to retain the scene as it was historically correct. Molotov said it was necessary to show repression, but at the same time one must show the purposes for which it was done. For this it was necessary to show state activities on a wider canvas and not to immerse oneself only with the scenes in the basements and enclosed areas. One must show wide state activity. Cherkasov expressed his ideas regarding the future of the altered scenes in the second series. Stalin, how does the film end? How better to do this, to make another two films, that is second and third series? How are we planning to do this? Eisenstein said it was better to combine the already shot material of the second series with what was left of the scenario and produce one big film. Everyone agreed to this. Stalin. How is your film going to end? Cherkasov said that the film would end with the defeat of Livonia, the tragic de- death of Malyut Skuratov, the march towards the sea where Ivan the Terrible is standing, surrounded by the army, and says, We are standing on the sea and will be standing. Stalin. This is how it turned out and a bit more than this. Cherkasov asked whether it would be necessary to show the outline of the film for confirmation by the Politburo. Stalin. It is not necessary to present the, uh, present the scenario, decide by yourselves. It is generally difficult to judge from the scenario. It's easier to talk about the ready product. To Molotov. You must be wanting to read the scenario. Molotov. No, I work in other fields. Le- let Bolshakov read it. Eisenstein said it, it was better not to hurry with the production of this film. This comment drew an active reaction from everybody. Stalin. It is absolutely necessary not to hurry, and in general, to hasten the film would lead to its being shut down rather than its being released. Repin worked of the Zaporozhye Cossacks writing to reply to the Turkish Sultan for 11 years. <coughs> Molotov. <coughs> 13 years. Stalin. With insistence. 11 years. Everybody came to the conclusion that only a long spell of work might in reality produce a good film. Regarding the film Ivan the Terrible, Stalin said, that if necessary, take one and a half, two, even three years to produce this film. But the film should be good. It should be sculptured. We must raise quality. Let there be fewer films, but of greater quality. The viewer has grown up, and we must show him good productions. It was discussed that Silikovsky acted well in other characters. She acts well, but she is a ballerina. We answered, and we here as the called-in uh, guys who make the movie, we answered that it was impossible to summon another, another actress from Alma-Ata. Stalin said that the director should be adamant and demand whatever they need. But our directors too easily yield on their own demands. It sometimes happens that a great actor is necessary, but is played by someone who does not suit the role. This is because the actor demands and receives the role, while the, the director agrees. Eisenstein. The actress Gosheva could not be released from the arts theater in Alma-Ata for the shooting. We searched two years for, an- for Anastasia. Stalin. Artist Jarkov incorrectly looked upon his character without any seriousness in the film Ivan the Terrible. He's not a serious army general. Zhdanov. This is not Malyuta uh, Skuratov, but an opera hat. Stalin. Ivan the Terrible was a more nationalistic czar, more foresighted. He did not allow foreign influence in Russia. Peter I opened the gate to Europe and allowed in too many foreigners. Cherkasov said that it was unfortunate and a personal shame that he had not seen the second part of the film Ivan the Terrible. When the film was edited and shown, he had been at the time in Leningrad. Eisenstein also added that he had not seen the complete version of the film because he had fallen ill after completing it. This caused great surprise and animation. The discussion ended with Stalin wishing them success and saying, May God help them.
They shook hands and left. At uh, at zero and ten minutes, the conversation ended. An addition was made to this report by Eisenstein and Cherkasso. Zdanov also said in the film that is too much overindulgence in religious rituals. So yeah, what you heard her was how Stalin micromanaged literally every aspect of everything. And yeah, this is uh, this was very long and uh, and chaotic there, but that's the original transcript. But yeah, see, uh, some of the most like interesting and revealing of these Soviet era files that. Uh, that have been accessible now, such as this one, really do show how Stalin and the party leadership were determined to exert, like, complete control over the movies and the, the movie makers. And yeah, as you heard about Zhdanov down there, Zhdanov was uh, an important minister tasked by Stalin with, with the job of uh, the ministry of uh, this this education of culture and, you know, how to deal with the movies. In February 1974, the party leadership, by the way, decided to purge what it claimed to be serious flaws in the ideological and political content of Soviet culture and improve its artistic content. Previously, five months earlier, the elite Central Committee had condemned the movie Glowing Life. Ominously for Eisenstein, the criticisms... which were kind of the official document uh, just, you know, before this meeting about the Ivan the Terrible, uh, which happened there, which I read to you, was, quote, The fact of the matter is that many of her leading cinema workers, producers, directors, and scenario writers are taking a lighthearted and irresponsible attitude to their duties and are not working consciously on the films that they produce. The chief defect in their work is failure to study subject matter. Producer Eisenstein betrayed ignorance of historical facts in the second series of Ivan Grozny, depicting his progressive army, the Oprichniki, as a gang of degenerates reminiscent of the American Ku Klux Klan. Ivan, a man of strong will and character, is shown as a, sp- as a weakling, as a Hamlet type. But yeah. In what became literally death sentence for some bureaucrats and filmmakers in the Soviet film industry, the committee deplored, quote, the production of worthless films that displayed lack of knowledge of subject matter and the light-hearted attitude of scenario writers and producers to their work. Extending the scope of its warning, the committee declared, <clears throat> Art workers must realize that those who continue to take an irresponsible, light-hearted attitude to their work may well find themselves superfluous and outside the ranks of progressive Soviet art. For the cultural requirements and demands of the Soviet theatre-goer have developed and the party and government will continue to cultivate among the people good taste and encourage exacting demands on works of art. Of course, all of this did not stop Soviet movie makers, and a uh, bit of a bit of a going back to comedies and openness came back later on in, uh, in 60s and 70s and 80s, but uh, honestly, wow, this episode has been going on for long now, and yeah... Well, we've we've only made it outside of the 20s. Tell you what, when we'll get that far enough in the main Stalin series, we shall continue this story because uh, at the beginning of all this research and all this work, I thought there wouldn't be as much to speak about. Turns out there is. So let us leave Stalin at the cinemas here. We'll be back when Khrushchev decides to go to the cinemas. He also likes movies. 
albeit a bit different kind. But yeah, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, called a lot of important data. One of the nicest cultural things going on here, I think. So, thank you for listening and до свидания, товарищи. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.